Let me pray before we begin. Father, I thank you for your word and that we can look into it. And I pray now as we go forward, we would count it a great privilege to be in your presence. And I pray that your spirit would guide what is said and how it is heard. That, Lord, it would be glorifying to you and edifying to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come now to chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. As is clear from even a surface reading of the text, the issue at hand is false teachers. In verse 5, Paul refers to them as super apostles. But by verse 13, he drops the sarcasm and straight up calls them false apostles, deceitful workmen. If you wonder where we are going with the application, it's pretty straightforward. Don't put up with false teachers. Now, it's worth stopping for a moment to consider why we have this text. I believe it is a warning to us. It's a warning we really need to hear. You see, it's easy to think of the Corinthians as just some group of loopy people that got saved somehow. But by virtually any standard, they were sophisticated, successful people. I know in my own experience, I've observed other Christians and I've thought, you know, those people are not well taught. As if good teaching is a guarantee to faithfulness. Well, let's apply that criteria to the church at Corinth. The Apostle Paul planted the church. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul gives thanks that the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. In 1 Corinthians 4.15, he says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The writer of half the New Testament considered himself to be their spiritual father. And he had not been an absent or an indifferent father. No, when they had questions, they wrote him letters, and Paul wrote them back and answered those questions. And when he couldn't visit them in person, he sent Timothy and Titus. Now, I don't know the backgrounds of everyone listening here, but I do know that none of us have sat under the ministry of an apostle with a direct commission from God, the writer of half the New Testament, or have sat under the ministry of two men that he mentored. These people were well taught. If that church with that background can go off the rails, so can we. Now, 1 Corinthians deals with a lot of issues. The Corinthians were new Christians. They didn't have many traditions to rely on, so they spent a lot of time and energy trying to figure out what being a Christian really means. There were factions, but it doesn't appear that false teaching is a prominent problem. A major theme in 1 Corinthians is unity. Paul wants them to be unified with one another. The emphasis in the tone in 2 Corinthians is different. Paul's emphasis is still unity, but he wants them to be unified with him. So, in chapter 9, he is pleading with them, first nine chapters. But when you get to chapter 10, the tone is more direct, it's more confrontational. The Corinthians 
because they seem to be wired that way and also because of the false teachers among them, put undue weight on presentation. And so, in all of his writing to the Corinthians, Paul consistently paints a contrast. That contrast is between the wisdom of God and the ways of man. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And further on, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. From the very beginning, Paul is warning them against using criteria that seem natural to them. Now, I recently finished a biography of sorts on St. Augustine. And for those of you who aren't familiar, Augustine was from North Africa and went away as a young man to be trained in rhetoric. And he was good. He became a Christian later in life when he came under the influence of a man named Ambrose. Ambrose was a brilliant man and a powerful preacher and teacher. But Augustine credits his faith to the prayers of his mother, Monica. She had a very uh, simple faith, not sophisticated, not like Ambrose, and certainly not like uh, Augustine came. Augustine was actually kind of embarrassed by her lack of sophistication and considered her sort of superstitious. Augustine may have been embarrassed by her, but Ambrose wasn't. And when Monica came to visit Augustine, Augustine would go to visit Ambrose, and he wants to talk about deep, heavy things like the problem of evil. Ambrose wants to talk about and chat about the faith of his mother. So, I share this because this desire of ours to not be foolish and to be sort of sophisticated, it, it runs deep. We want to be known as insightful. And those who are simplistic, they're annoying. I get that. Boy, do I get that. But this desire to be sophisticated, to be insightful, can make us blind and vulnerable to flattery and all sorts of other temptations. Sometimes we can confuse a love of good teaching with a compelling presentation. It happened in Corinth, and it can happen in Starkville. Paul knows all this, so when he starts chapter 11 with, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Now, in starting this way, he accomplishes two things. He is reminding them that what they may regard as foolishness is how they got saved. And he is poking at the Corinthians' pretensions about sophistication and presentation. But his heart won't allow them to stay in that mode for long. Recalling his role of father that he spoke of in 1 Corinthians, he goes on in verse 2 and says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed to you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. As many of you know, in the Jewish tradition, betrothment, betrothal, was a formal arrangement 
much more formal than we think of as engagement today. It wasn't just a verbal arrangement. If you remember, Joseph was betrothed to Mary. And when he found out Mary was pregnant, Matthew says he decided to divorce her quietly. It required a very formal breaking. Paul sees becoming a Christian as a betrothal to God. And the father of the prospective bride has a responsibility to protect her purity until she was presented at the groom, to the groom at the wedding. Now, there is no heartache like watching someone you love make foolish choices. Paul is willing to be embarrassed. He is willing to lay down his reputation. He's willing to act foolish for his daughter, in this case, the Corinthian church. He's not dispassionately informing them that they've got some doctrinal point not quite right. He's going after them with everything he has because of the stakes involved. This is what it means to be a leader, whether the context is the church or in the home. This is how we react to danger. Now, what are the stakes in this case? Well, how big of a deal is it? Notice to what he compares their situation. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. What went wrong with Adam and Eve in the garden? In a word, everything. There is no other comparison that Paul could have made that would have been half as weighty. Those are the stakes. To be compared to those responsible for the fall would have gotten their attention. It should get ours as well. Now, some of you may wonder why he singled out Eve and doesn't mention Adam. I think there are a couple of things to be said. First, Paul was full of Scripture. In reaching for this example, he is actually quoting from Eve in Genesis 3, the serpent deceived me. But more than that, Eve means mother of all living, and I think our likeness to her in being susceptible to being deceived and being led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ is being highlighted. Now, what are the false teachers saying? If they are so dangerous, how can we identify them? Paul describes three things about them. First, they proclaim another Jesus. Now, it might be fun to know exactly what they were saying and how how they were describing Jesus. But I'm reminded of something I learned when I lived in Washington, D.C. Every day when I went to work, went over the Memorial Bridge, over the Potomac, and then the road turns north, and there's a big white building on the left. It was the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. This is where they physically make money. Now, when they make money, one of their primary concerns is counterfeiting. Now, the responsibility for policing counterfeit money actually falls under the Secret Service. Now, I learned something on a tour through the Bureau of Engraving. I've never forgotten it. Do you know how they train agents to identify counterfeit currencies? They study the real thing. Paul preached a particular Jesus. 
he had encountered that risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and he declared in 1 Corinthians 5, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It is this crucified Jesus that is offensive. For the cross insists that our biggest problem is our sin. And this risen Jesus bids his followers to take up a cross and follow in his footsteps. My Bible reading recently took me through the Gospel of Mark. Mark is the shortest gospel, but in it, nine separate times, Jesus instructs instructs others to keep quiet about him and not tell others what he has done. Sometimes he says that to evil spirits. Other times it's to people who have been healed. One time he says it to Peter, right after Peter had said, for you are the Christ. Do you ever wonder why he did that? He certainly instructed his disciples to go and tell in the Great Commission, but that was after his death and resurrection. Why not earlier? I think it's because we are so prone to distorting the message to fit our own biases. Jesus as healer, Jesus as miracle worker are true, but those emphases put put weight on the wrong place. When Paul says, I will boast only in the cross, he is putting the emphasis where Jesus did. As Peter put it in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And if you preach a different Jesus, then you preach a different gospel. It may be a gospel where Jesus is very helpful and very understanding. But if we lose the centrality of the cross... We lose Jesus. We lose the true gospel. We lose everything. Look again at Paul's charge against the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11.4. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And we've talked about another Jesus, and we noted that it leads to a different gospel. But what about that different spirit from the one you received? Now, some take that to be a distortion of the Holy Spirit, but in the context, I think it refers more to the tone in the teaching. Uh, And you'll see that when he compares his ministry to that of the false teachers. Right away, he says in verses 5 and 6, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. He lampoons them for being super apostles. What are their credentials? Well, they have a flair for public speaking. And look again at what Kevin pointed out last week. They commended themselves when comparing themselves with one another. It was a mutual admiration society. They had moved on beyond stodgy old Paul. He was inferior. 
according to their judgment. And look how these super apostles treated them. If you glance down at verses 19 and 20, look what Paul says. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For, if you, for you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. Jesus spoke about that kind of leadership in Matthew 20. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, as a ransom for many. This is the spirit of ministry, which is from the real Jesus. It is what Paul showed when he was there. Now, this gets back to the comparison we spoke of earlier, the ways of the world versus the wisdom of God. But as Paul stated back in 2 Corinthians 10.3, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, The way of the flesh is to be large and in charge. That's not the way of Jesus, and it's certainly not the way of Paul. But that did not mean Paul was not willing to fight. We see this in 2 Corinthians. He is willing to wage war on those who are menacing the church. And in the next section, we see him going after the super apostles for something that really sticks in his craw. Read from from verses 7 through 11. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. Achaia is the region around Corinth. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. What's going on? Well, part of the critique of the super apostles was that he didn't charge the Corinthians for his labors. You can read about it in Acts 18. Paul came to Corinth where he met Aquila. He preached in the synagogue for a while, and the Jews rejected him. He moved in with Aquila and Priscilla and stayed with them for 18 months. Now, because Paul didn't take any money, the Corinthians, the super apostles, are trying to use that fact against him. Basically, they're saying, hey, you get what you pay for. We didn't pay Paul. Probably wasn't worth it. He didn't get much. That's worldly wisdom, the natural ways of man. But Paul calls them out. Did I sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge? Didn't they see Paul was not only proclaiming the gospel, but illustrating it. You can't earn salvation or buy it. It's a gift. Paul's model of ministry 
illustrated the gospel. But there's more. Verse 9. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Paul is pointing out that a sacrifice was made. He made that sacrifice because he loved them. But not only that, those unsophisticated Macedonians in the north, Philippi and Ephesus, they loved the Corinthians more than the super apostles did because they gave so that they could hear the gospel. In Romans 14, Paul says, Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. That is what he's doing here. The Corinthians were allowing Paul's sacrifice and the gift of the Macedonians to be portrayed as a black mark. Paul would not entertain that kind of criticism about God's children. And so he closes this portion of our text. And what, am I, and what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And what I am doing, I will continue to do. He's not quitting. He gives a couple of reasons why. First, he wants to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim in their boasted mission that they work on the same terms as we do. What's that about? Basically, it's this. The super apostles got their commendation from each other. Back in 10, verse 12, we see that they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another. But drop down to verse 18 at the end of that chapter. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Paul perseveres because he is commended and he has his charge from the Lord. And by persevering, Paul intends to demonstrate that he is not working on the same term as the super apostles. It, all, it was in Corinth that Paul clarified his mission to the Gentiles. He had gone to the Jews, and the Jews rejected him. And then Paul says, I shook out my garments and said to them, from now on I will go to the Gentiles. It was just after that, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. This was Paul's commendation. This is the term that Paul was operating under and preserving, persevering in his ministry. He would demonstrate the falsity of the super-apostles' boastful claims. Now, the second reason that Paul perseveres is because he keeps the end in view. We often wonder why false teachers flourish. 
Rest assured, Paul tells us, their end will correspond with their deeds. Quite simply, it's impossible to persevere in faithfulness without the end in view. There is a heaven to be gained and a coming wrath to be avoided. Do you give much thought to end things? If you do not, let me encourage you to do so. It will provide fuel for faithfulness. Now, clearly, this text is a warning against false teachers. But the problem is, false teachers don't come in wearing a jersey that identifies their allegiance. As a matter of fact, they come in disguised. As Paul notes here at the end of our text, Satan disguised himself as an angel of light, and his servants disguised themselves as servants of righteousness. There's a special responsibility for elders in a church to keep watch for false teachers or wolves, as other texts refer to them. In the history of the church, they are continual menace. But in this text, what Paul says to the Corinthians regarding false teaching, you put up with it readily enough, he's addressing to the whole church. What Satan needs to succeed is an apathetic and doctrinally indifferent church. We cannot coast on good teaching we have received. I think this passage tells us to wake up and smell the sulfur. Satan is always at work. Listen to this from Martin Luther. The devil takes no holiday. He never rests. If beaten, he rises again. If he cannot enter in the front, he steals in the rear. If he cannot enter at the rear, he breaks through the roof or enters by tunneling under the threshold. He labors until he is in. He uses great cunning and many a plan. When one miscarries, he has another at hand and continues his attempt until he wins. We are sent out like sheep among wolves. So how do we recognize the wolves? I don't believe most wolves think of themselves as wolves. How then should we identify them? Paul focuses on their content. What do they say? What do they leave out? What is the Jesus they talk about like? They, these False teachers, these wolves, and we can be oblivious to how much our minds are shaped by the world. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may test and discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. We need to use the criteria that Paul does. What are they saying? Are they promoting another Jesus? Is the, one, is the Jesus they are promoting one who came and died for sin and bids us to follow in his footsteps? Or does their Jesus seem most concerned about the political and social issues of the day? Or maybe helping us to be better, more moral, and successful people? John's gospel talks about how Jesus came full of grace and truth. It seems to me that different Jesuses offered up tend to go off the rails in one direction or another. In between grace and truth. 
A few years ago, I read an article that has stuck with me. It was a warning against wounded wolves. These are folks who really have been hurt, often by churches. The problem arises when we believe that that wounding provides special insights about the human condition. And because these people have already been hurt, we're, we're reluctant to rebuke them. Who wants to add to their distress? In this way, their brokenness provides both a platform for them and a shield against legitimate criticism. And what's more, in most cases, these are attractive people. They are open, authentic, and they gravitate towards the hurting. Now, some questions we can ask ourselves. How does this person respond to authority? Do they submit to a team? Do they work to get along? Or are they a lone wolf, resisting those who would question their ideas and their insights? How do they respond to those who disagree with them? Wolves bite. Are their words and plans full of cunning and deceit? Or are they like Paul, who told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4.2, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open, open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. These are just some observations for you to chew on. But I don't want to leave you there. Sure, Satan is relentless. Wolves can be hard to recognize. We deceive ourselves. It's no wonder others deceive us. Things look really bad in 2 Corinthians 11, but back up a bit. In Acts 18, where Paul is beginning his ministry in Corinth, the Lord appeared to him in a vision to encourage him, and he told Paul, I have many people, many in this city who are my people. But the story actually begins before that. Our text begins with an allusion to the fall in the garden. When that happened, things looked hopeless. But the story actually begins before that. In Revelation, we learn that God chose his people, referring to the Corinthian church and to all of God's people, including us, that they are his and he chose us before the foundation of the world. Look at all God has done to create and rescue his people. God, being rich in mercy, sent Jesus. And for the Corinthians, he later sent Paul. And when the Corinthians were being led astray, he had Paul again declare to them the real Jesus, full of truth and grace to bring them back to himself. The end for Satan and his servants is destruction. But according to Jesus, those who are his will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of his hand. We need to be alert, but we need not be afraid. I close with this from Psalm 40, verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Father, we are sheep. I thank you that you have sent the good shepherd. 
I pray that you would give us eyes to identify and love what is true. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a passion for your people like Paul had for the Corinthians, that we would yearn for them and protect them, speaking what is true and what is helpful and pointing them to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.